Let's uh, pray then as we prepare to open the word of God once more. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, there are so many words, speeches, talks that we can easily access on the internet, on YouTube, on various platforms. But you have the words of eternal life. Lord, to whom else shall we go to? You have the words of eternal life. And now as we turn to your word, which is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, we pray that you would attend and encourage our hearts, change our hearts, take the sword of the Spirit and do surgery where you need to do surgery on us to transform us and make us look more like Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Give us attentiveness now as we look at your word. And Lord, may this be about the spirit and the word. Uh, if my words get in the way, Lord, I pray that you just throw them out and make them like chaff and that your word would be the thing that people would be impacted by and remember. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the year 1978, Czechoslovakia was still under communist rule. And an essay was written that year by a dissident named Václav Havel. Havel's essay was secretly distributed around Eastern Europe, and it ended up having a very great impact. In his essay, Havel painted a picture. He wanted his readers to imagine a grocery shop owner who receives a shipment from the warehouse. It's a shipment of vegetables. But included with that shipment is a poster that is intended to be displayed in the shopkeeper's front window along with the vegetables. And on the poster is written the communist slogan, workers of the world unite. The shopkeeper sets up the vegetable display and he goes ahead and he puts up the poster in his window as well. Why does he put up the poster? Well, because he doesn't want any trouble. He wants his life to go on and run as smoothly as it has run. He'll simply conform to what the state demands so that he can keep selling his vegetables in peace. He doesn't want to alienate himself from the rest of society who are going along with the state program. And so he'll just go with the flow and avoid trouble. But then one day, the shopkeeper gets out of bed and he changes his mind. He'll stop putting up those posters when they arrive from the warehouse. And what's more, he'll start speaking out about what he really thinks. He'll stop living the lie that is being foisted upon him. 
You won't play the game anymore. The shopkeeper has realized that the truth and living in the truth is just far too important. The shopkeeper has realized, as Charles Chaput has said, that the culture of lies thrives on his complicity and on his lack of courage. The culture of lies thrives on his complicity and on his lack of courage. So the shopkeeper has changed his mind. He won't put up the posters anymore. And for his trouble, the shopkeeper loses his job at the shop and he's transferred to a lower paying role in the warehouse. As Havel puts it in his essay, the shopkeeper's hopes for a holiday in Bulgaria evaporate. His children's access to higher education is threatened. His superiors harass him and his fellow workers wonder about him. The system, says Havel, the system punishes the shopkeeper for his rebellion. What has the shopkeeper done? Well, what he's done, friends, what he's done, despite the hardship that it has caused him, what he's done is he's shown the world that it is possible to live in the truth. By his courageous stance, he has cast a bright light into the darkness of his surroundings. As Havel puts it, the shopkeeper has confronted appearances, has confronted appearances with reality. Well, what about you, my Christian believing Friend, what about you? Have you ever been faced, or are you now faced even, with a situation where you feel it absolutely necessary to take a stand for what you really believe? To draw a line in the sand at the risk of personal attack or trouble on your head. Young Daniel and his three peers had been abruptly transferred into Babylon. And Babylon insisted, didn't they, that these Hebrew boys be re-educated so that they thought Babylonian, they talked Babylonian, they ate the cuisine of the Babylonians. Daniel and his friends had been compliant. We remember from last week, they had been compliant with much of that. They had agreed, for example, to engage the college program of the Babylonians. They had accepted the change of their very names. They played the game, so to speak, as far as those things went. But now in verse 8 of chapter 1, where we're starting today, Something happens. Now Daniel reminds us of that shopkeeper who decided to draw a line because the truth was just too important. 
Now, if you remember from last Sunday, if you're with us, in verse 7, the text told us that one of the great pegs, one of the great pegs of the Babylonian social re-engineering program was that the chief Babylonian officer, note the word, gave Daniel and his friends their new names. The verb there in verse 7 that we translate into English as the word gave is a Hebrew verb that literally means to put, to place, or to fix. So the chief officer placed those names on the young men. He put those names on the young men. He fixed new names on them. And this is the very same Hebrew verb that gets used now in verse 8. But Daniel resolved. There's the verb. Literally, Daniel fixed it in his heart. Daniel put it in his heart that what? He would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. So see this. It's an important thing that happens in the text. The Babylonian official, Ashpenaz, fixes new names on these young men, verse 7, and one of those young men now counters by fixing something of his own. Daniel fixes in his heart that he will not go along with this particular phase of the social re-engineering program. Daniel draws a line. Now, friends, I want you to imagine with me the conversation that was happening among all the youth. Bro, <laughs> have you seen what lands on Nebuchadnezzar's table every night? Yo, yo. <laughs> See, I live with a teenager. Slow-cooked tri-tip roast on that table. Glazed carrots. Stuffed potatoes a glass of the finest red wine, creme brulee for dessert. It wasn't long ago, remember, we were pressed up, weren't we? We were pressed up in Jerusalem with the Babylonian army staring down at our doorstep. Remember that? We were eating those war rations that barely kept us alive for all those days. Imagine our fortune now being offered the finest cuisine in all of Babylon. Isn't this great? But Daniel fixed. Daniel resolved that he would not defile, that he would not pollute, that he would not contaminate himself with the king's tri-tip roast and gravy and aged Chardonnay. Oh, please, Daniel. Please. Everyone else is falling in line. Everybody else is sitting down at the table. Is this your idea of virtue signaling, Daniel? Just grab your fork, grab your knife, 
dig in with us. You risk, Daniel, you risk insulting and angering the king. And you might even risk personal injury if the king finds out about this, Daniel. You also won't advance, Daniel. You're not going to get anywhere in this culture unless you comply and eat what's put in front of you. You're in Babylon now, Daniel. You're far from home. We know that your parents raised you as they did. They raised you to keep the laws of Israel's God. But have you seen the pork ribs that they are carting out, Daniel? And besides, Daniel, it seems like God forgot about us, didn't he? When we were captured, when we were brought over here as captives, is his law really worth abiding by anymore? You're in Babylon, Daniel. But Daniel resolved, read it with me, that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. I want you to listen carefully, my friends. Something in Daniel's inner life was so important and so vital that Daniel was willing to risk comfort, position, social acceptance, and even personal safety in order to stay true to that something. What was that something? That something was the living God, listen, the living God in Daniel's life who overrode every other factor. Public opinion was not what drove Daniel's convictions. God was. Fidelity to God was more important to Daniel deep down in his bones than anything else. As Brian Chappell puts it so well, he says, if Daniel would risk position, privilege, and life itself for a pure relationship with his God then that must be quite a relationship and that must be quite a God. But we ask the question, why? What precisely was going on here? Why precisely did Daniel refuse? What what exactly was it about God and about Daniel's relationship with God that would cause Daniel to draw this particular line in the sand. After all, remember, the re-education program, the renaming, those things were accepted without any fuss. Why was this food issue the problematic issue for Daniel? I think there are possibly three things that are working in the background that help us make sense of Daniel's no of his line in the sand. First was Israel's food laws. Israel's food laws forbade the consumption of things like pork and horse meat, which the Babylonians were known to enjoy. God's laws concerning food also stipulated that the blood of an animal had to be drained when that animal was slaughtered. But the Babylonians didn't care about draining the blood. 
And Babylonian wine would have certainly been used in pagan rituals. So it's quite possible then that Daniel's no to the Babylonian buffet found its source in the food laws of Israel and Daniel's personal heart conviction that he must steadfastly obey those gods that came from his God. Secondly, in this Babylonian society where Daniel was, it was highly probable, highly probable, that the meat on the table had been offered to Babylonian gods as a sacrifice before they ended up there on the table. In which case, if one were to eat it in this culture, in, this, in Daniel's Jew, Jewish culture, if one were to eat it, the idea was that the Babylonian God was transferring blessing onto you as you ate. And for a faithful Hebrew like Daniel, this was strictly prohibited. So that too may be at work in the background of Daniel's no. Third and finally, in the ancient Near East, to eat at another person's table, to eat the food that another person had prepared for you was often a sign of a covenantal bond or a covenantal pact between you and your host. So that for Daniel to eat from the king's table could signify Daniel's commitment to Nebuchadnezzar, it would signal Daniel's fealty to the Babylonian king to eat Nebuchadnezzar's filet mignon would be Daniel saying, in effect, that he was obliged now to Nebuchadnezzar in everything. But as Chris Wright has put it, quote, covenant loyalty was exclusively for God. Covenant loyalty could not be shared with a human king however tempting his menu and wine list. Daniel wouldn't do it. So I think all three of these things, or at least a measure of each of the three, may be informing the no that Daniel gives here. He draws his risky, yes, risky line in the sand. Daniel's message is essentially this. Assimilation into Babylon will not be total for me. Assimilation into Babylon will not be total for me. And Daniel knows very well the risks involved in taking this stand, but what does he do? He goes ahead and does it. Well, what about us, Christian believers? Where is the line for us? As we involve ourselves in this world and as we work within the world as salt and light in the world, what is the point or what are the points at which we will draw the line because of God and our fealty, our loyalty to Him? The Word of God is encouraging us here that sometimes we must draw a line. It may not be a food issue for us. It may be something else. It may be an alluring job promotion that we can have if we're just willing to temporarily abandon our obedience to God in order to get the job. 
Will we draw a line out of love for God and out of obedience to Him? Or it may be a relationship. Well, she sure is pretty. She sure is beautiful. She seems to like me too. But she's not a Christian. Where will we draw the line? It may be another issue. It may be another situation. But again, the question that I should ask myself and that you should ask yourself as Christian believers, where will I draw the line? Have I thought through this? As a citizen of heaven who claims to treasure God above all, have I thought seriously about this? Now, so far, I realize we haven't gotten terribly far through the text this morning. So far, we've looked at what I would call the matter, TT, matter, that presented itself to Daniel. As verse 8 continues, now we come to the manner, double N, manner, in which Daniel approached the matter. The manner in which he approached the matter. Now, watch this because it is so instructive for us. God's people, the manner, Daniel's approach to this, Daniel's attitude in this. Daniel fixed it in his heart, yes, that he would not eat or drink from the king's table. Therefore, what did Daniel do? Now stop for a minute. Did Daniel pick up a megaphone and draw up some protest signs and go out and start shouting shrill slogans in the direction of Babylon's administration. Did he do that? No. Did Daniel become all theatrically offended and engage in histrionics on the streets of Babylon? No. Did Daniel organize his friends to start banging loudly on the supper table at supper time to demand change? No. I want you to watch carefully how Daniel approached this. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs, the chief official, Ashpenaz, to allow him not to defile himself. Would you notice the godly wisdom, and the courtesy of Spirit-filled Daniel. Daniel goes one-on-one. -on -one. Notice what he does. He pulls aside the very guy who had renamed him. This guy, Ashpenaz. And Daniel has a private conversation with him. In a quiet and respectful way, Daniel makes his request. Friends, the Spirit is speaking to us here if we have ears to hear. 2 Timothy 2.24 The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to how many people? Everyone. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Even as Daniel fights the good fight of faith, which he is fighting in this Babylonian culture and engages this official, he is respectful. He is kind. He is winsome. He is Christ-like. 
May the Lord help us and may he strengthen us to be as winsome as Daniel in our increasingly combative culture. Church, we need to go against the tide and the power of the Spirit and be countercultural and show them Jesus. Now, remember back in the second verse of this first chapter, God explicitly, didn't he? He entered into the story in the, in the second verse as he gave Jehoiakim, God gave Jehoiakim into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, for the second time in the story, God's work gets explicit mention. Verse 9, and God gave, notice this, God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Now, I think the way this verse is translated actually by the Jewish Publication Society, I looked at a lot of translations this week, but I think the JPS gives us perhaps an even clearer picture of the Hebrew here. And God disposed the chief officer to be kind and compassionate toward Daniel. Wow. Now notice, God is not confined here to the territory of Israel, right? God is at work in Babylon. And where is he at work? He's at work in the heart and in the mind of this Babylonian official here. Did you know that God is sovereign over human affairs? Yes, amen? God makes the demeanor and the attitude of this Babylonian official to be kind and to be compassionate toward Daniel. So Daniel, friends, notice Daniel becomes like a new Joseph here. As Joseph found favor in Pharaoh's sight while Joseph was on the foreign soil of Egypt, Genesis 39.4, so Daniel now finds favor with Ashpenaz on Babylonian soil. Our mighty God, our amazing God, listen, he can turn the hearts of his people's captors so that those captors have pity on their captives. Psalm 106, 46. What Solomon prayed for in 1 Kings 8.50 as the temple was being dedicated, he prayed that Israel's captors would have compassion on Israel's captives. This is coming to pass here. Ashpenaz has favor and compassion toward Daniel, and this, friends, is no small thing. We serve an amazing God, amen, who even in the midst of our trials provides us with remarkable kindnesses, which he did for Daniel here through Ashpenaz. Now notice what happens in verse 10. After listening with compassion to Daniel's request, God implanted compassion. Listening to the request to be exempted from the food and wine, Ashpenaz says to Daniel, yeah, Daniel, I can't personally make this happen for you. I mean, you have to put yourself in my shoes. I fear market. I fear my Adonai in Hebrew, my Lord, the King. Now notice in the story how Daniel has feared his Lord and King, yes, <laughs> the Lord and King named Yahweh. 
so that Daniel drew his line in the sand. But now, by contrast, Ashpenaz divulges where his fear lies. Ashpenaz fears the little flesh and blood human king named Nebuchadnezzar. Ashpenaz says, I'm scared of Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar is the one who assigned you, remember, your food and drink. Why should he see that you were in worse condition than your peers, than than the youths of your own age? Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar is going to come around and he's going to see you looking all ashen and looking gaunt while your peers are looking very healthy and very robust. And it's going to come back to me, Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar's going to wonder why I am starving you like this and I'll be in heaps of trouble. Ashpenaz says at the end of verse 10, so you would endanger my head with the king. So Ashpenaz can see this thing going all the way to the guillotine. And once again, friends, notice what happens in the story in verse 11. I'll I'll tell you what doesn't happen, okay? Daniel does not get upset here and show his displeasure toward Ashpenaz as Ashpenaz refuses to personally grant this request of Daniel. Daniel does not pull out his megaphone and begin protesting. Daniel is wise in the wisdom of God. He trusts the power of God, the Spirit of God, Daniel operates in the gentleness and reverence of 1 Peter 3, verse 16. Daniel 1.11, then Daniel said to, notice, the steward now. Okay, so Daniel goes a rung or two lower on the Babylonian ladder. He turns to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And Daniel says to the steward, again, presumably in a private conversation, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you. And, steward, go ahead and deal with your servants according to what you see. Daniel proposes this 10-day experiment. And in the original Hebrew text, the word that is translated here as vegetables means that which grows from sown seed. That which grows from sown seeds. So along with the vegetables, this proposed diet would also include grains, fruits, bread made from the grains, just no pork, no horse meat, no wine. Ten days of this, says Daniel. Ten days is going to be long enough for you to tell if our physical appearance looks worse than the other young guys who are eating the meat and drinking the wine, but it's not too long a period that the king's suspicion is going to be raised and you catch trouble on your head. And if at the end of the 10 days, you decide, you look at us and you decide we look terrible, then do whatever you like, but just give us 10 days eating veggies and bread and water. Verse 14, so the Babylonian steward 
Listen to them. Hmm, I wonder who's at work here. (laughs) God is at work. He listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. So for 10 days, these young guys ate nothing but mangoes and Brussels sprouts and watermelons, raisin bread, water to drink. Verse 15, the Lord is at work, friends. The Lord is at work in the bodies and in the countenances of these young men. And at the end of 10 days, it was seen, everybody could see it, that they were, what? Better in appearance and fatter in flesh. Isn't the Bible politically incorrect? Fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. All glory to God for this miracle. Since they were not eating from Nebuchadnezzar's menu, Nebuchadnezzar could not then be given any credit for the healthy appearance of Daniel and his friends. This was the work of the true king, the God of Israel, all glory to God. And our last verse this morning then. So the steward took away their food and their wine that they were to drink. We wonder... Uh, Was the steward hungry? (laughs) Did he take advantage here? Who knows? The steward took away their food and wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. So now this meal arrangement becomes an ongoing thing. Now, friends, what has happened? What has happened in this part of the story of Daniel? Well, Daniel and his friends have managed, haven't they, to remain obedient to their king, to God. Ashpenaz has kept his job and has kept his head, as did the lower-ranked steward, while Nebuchadnezzar suspects nothing. Who is it that has worked all this out in an amazing way? God has. In our closing moments this morning, I want us to return just for a moment to where we began in the text this morning, to verse 8, where we had the report that not only did Daniel refuse the king's food, remember, this young man from the tribe of Judah also refused the wine that the king drank. And in his refusal, Daniel then, as we said, he opened himself up to the very real possibility of suffering at the hands of Babylon. Well, centuries later, friends, centuries after this, another young man from the tribe of Judah would refuse to drink some wine. His name was Jesus. In the moment when Jesus arrived on Golgotha to be crucified, we're told in Mark 15, 23, that they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Now, when Daniel had refused the wine because of his obedience to God, there was at least the possibility that Daniel would then suffer for his choice, right? When Jesus refused the wine mixed with myrrh, which would have acted as a primitive narcotic painkiller to him as his wrists and his feet were nailed to the cross, 
He refused it in His obedience to the Father so that He could experience, listen, that He could experience the full weight and the impact of the suffering that you and I deserve for our sin against God. As one writer puts it, and I like this, in the self-giving of Jesus, there would be no self-sparing. In the self-giving of Jesus, there would be no self-sparing. Jesus refused that narcotic wine knowing full well that He must now drink from another cup. The cup ordained for Him. This was the cup of which He said in Gethsemane, Father, if You are willing, as He's sweating the drops of blood, if You are willing, remove this cup from Me. Nevertheless, not My will, but Yours be done. This was the cup of suffering in the place of sinners. Are you a sinner saved by grace this morning? This was the cup that he must drink to the dregs. The cup of the suffering of the cross through which forgiveness of sinners has come. Well, as obedient Daniel was later exalted, wasn't he? Daniel was exalted to a high status within Babylon. Jesus, the Son of God, was exalted to what? Universal authority, yes, for His willing obedience to go to the cross. Of Jesus, Paul writes in Philippians 2, God has what? Highly exalted Him. Yes, He's our King. And bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, yes? Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess, what? That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. My friends, the suffering servant named Jesus, who was later exalted, in due time, exalted to the highest place of the universe, He is the one we serve. Yes? And so we can expect, can't we, that our lives, as true followers, followers of this Jesus, our lives are going to reflect His. Suffering now, glory, exaltation later. Pain in our witness at times. But glory is coming. As we endeavor to obey Him, we're going to find ourselves having to draw lines in the sand from time to time like Daniel. And there will be suffering. In this world, you will have tribulation, said Jesus. But be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. To be the salt and the light in this world that we are called to be. To take our stand. Draw our lines in the sand for gospel truth. It may mean suffering for our convictions, but we serve a king, friends. We serve a king who has assured us with staggering promises like these that the meek shall inherit what? A nice house? No. The earth 
And this one also, I'm going to close with this one, Luke 12, 32. Jesus says to you this morning, it says to me, fear not, little flock, directly from the lips of Jesus. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Your Word is truth. Contrary to what the culture says, there is objective truth, and You have given it to us. And Lord, as Your followers, we ask as we go out with the armor that You have supplied for us this week, that we would be people of truth. Winsome, Christ-like, gentle, respectful, reverential to those around you, and most importantly, reverential to you. We pray your help. Spirit, strengthen us for the week upcoming. Strengthen us for our journey and lead us safely home as we know you will. In Jesus' name, amen.